Greetings in the name of Jesus this morning. Certainly been blessed. I know we almost always say that, but I do mean it. It's been an interesting morning for me. The uh, songs that were picked, Brother Russell's devotional, the Sunday school lesson discussion, and the message all were, I believe, superintended to tie together. I had no idea what Russell was going to talk about, and Russell had no idea what I was going to talk about, and the song leader had no idea what we were going to be sharing. But it's interesting to see the co-relationship. May God bless us as we look into the scriptures again and ponder his truth. I'd like to take your thoughts for the message this morning to Mark chapter 12. This thought of Christ here spoke to the his followers and especially um, the scribe that day. It's kind of been on my mind all week. You think about what does God... What is God looking for from our lives? As a Christian, what is he expecting of us? And we can say a lot of things and, you know, in relation to a lot of good, good things, we're to be merciful and peacemakers and, and um, lights to the world and just a lot of things that we could, we could name if we would go around this morning and take the time to, to talk about it. But what is, if you put it in a nutshell, you know, just frame it into one thing, what is God looking for from our lives? What should be our focus above all else? We titled the message this morning, The Greatest Commandment, Luke 12 and verse 28. I'm going to read down to verse 34. Now this, uh, this is uh, in the context of Jesus talking to the Sadducees as they were trying to trap him. And they gave this scenario where there was this uh, woman that was married seven times or her every husband died without having children. And, um, and, and they were trying to trap Jesus with this, you know, this scenario or this... Um, hypothetical story. They said, so in the resurrection then, whose wife shall she be? Because she was married to, to seven. Seven brothers. And, and so that was the context. And we have in verse 24, Jesus answering and said, you do, do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God, and, and then Jesus said that in verse 25, in the resurrection, there's not going to be marriage. Um, people sometimes like the idea of talking about, you know, marriage, uh, maybe invitation, or sometimes you see it where sometimes people talk about, you know, married for time and for eternity. Well, the Bible makes that pretty clear. There's, there's no distinction in eternity between man and woman in that sense. Um, there is no marriage. He has the angels. Verse 25. And then Jesus um, just addressed the deep problem of their whole issue here, and that is not believing in the resurrection from the dead. And of course, they, the Sadducees, neither did they believe in miracles or angels. Verse 26. And as touching the dead, that they rise not, have you not read in the book of Moses... How in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Very simple truth here. And then Jesus just nailed it to them very clearly and left them in plain words speechless. He said, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. You know, why would God say, I'm the God of these three dead men? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said that at the bush. Because he's the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. These three men were still living. And so uh, that silenced them. They, they could not 
get past that simple argument that Jesus gave them. And now in verse 28, we're going to begin reading here. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, I'd like to give a little background here. A lot of the rabbis, the scribes, there was a bit of an argument sometimes over exactly, you know, which detail came first in relation to the law and the keeping of the law. And so the background of this was that there was always this little friction or discussion about it. And Jesus answered, answered him, The first of all, the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any questions. This was one of the more honest scribes that we have referred to in the, in the scriptures. Many of the scribes were, were uh, those who tried to entrap Jesus, but it seems like what, uh, we don't know the motive where he first, or the motive of the question that he first asked in verse 28. But by the time that Jesus was done, at least he, uh, he said, I agree with you. I, I, you said it right. You said the truth. And he furthermore understood the spiritual implication of this when he said that it is, um, it is uh, more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he understood the spiritual implication of what Jesus was saying. Now, in relation to this, this subject this morning, when you think about what is the Lord asking of us, what is he looking for from our lives and then you think about what Jesus said here in the end of verse 31, there is none other commandment greater than these. And, and while we, we look at a lot of different aspects of Christian living, like I mentioned before, but maybe sometimes we don't just narrow down and keep it as simple as it ought to be. And maybe we struggle out here with things and trying to figure out things and understand things, when really if we, we focus on the, the central issue of what it means to be a child of God, that would take care of a lot of those other issues sometimes that we, we struggle with. So I'd like this morning to focus on this scripture, thinking of it as the greatest commandment, or it's also called the first commandment, and, and to notice here what Jesus says and how it applies to us in our lives. This scribe came and asked him, which is the first commandment? Now it is interesting Jesus' response was not with a question this time, but Jesus' response was quick and to the point. And, um, and in relation to, the, to this question, the most important is, or the first is, as Jesus says here, the first of all, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, o, Lord, o Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Jesus backs up even further from the aspect of, loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, to backing up to what was in Israel called the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, and um, verse, uh, four, verses 4 and 5. You can turn back there and look at this. This is a familiar passage because we often refer to this in relation to teaching our children and binding these for a sign upon thy hand and frontless between thine eyes. Orthodox Jews still practice a form of that today. If you've uh, been in those circles or traveling sometimes, you see that. Um, but notice chapter Deuteronomy 6 and verse 
4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then in verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and so on. So there we have what is called, by the Jews, called the Shema. And it's interesting that this confession in relation to the Lord is one Lord, and thou shalt worship the Lord thy God with all thy, with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not quite what it says here, and all thy might. Um, that was repeated morning and evening by all the devout Jews. And I understand that it is still repeated morning and evening by many of the Orthodox Jews today. This greatest commandment or first commandment, that the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, so on. So it is interesting that that is really um, foundational as it relates to Jewish thought in serving their Jehovah God. Now, again, this question of what is God looking for from our lives, what is it that pleases him? The command to love God illustrates that God's Special revelation, I believe, demands an appropriate response from mankind. You think about the love that God has shed abroad in our hearts, that God has given in salvation, and the revelation of himself to mankind, that, that revelation to us should elicit or bring forth a response that is suitable when you think about the greatness of God the, the, the provision of God for mankind in salvation. God is, in other words, God is not looking for and will not accept a half-hearted commitment. He's a great God. And he has revealed himself in tremendous ways. Why would he accept a mediocre response from mankind? And that, I think, is, is at the bottom of this whole, or the foundation of this whole issue in relation to Loving the Lord our God with all, with everything, as we will look at this. Because that is the only appropriate response to the greatness of God. It's like the Old Testament prophet, it only came to my mind right now. I don't have the reference for you. But the Old Testament prophet talked about Israel bringing their sacrifices, you know, and they brought the sick and the lame, you know, the lambs, which were supposed to be without blemish. And they, that's what they bring, you know, the, the, second, the seconds of their flock. The ones that, you know, would not bring a very good price in the market. They bring those to the, to the temple, the tabernacle to offer. And the prophet was, is, is chiding them and rebuking them for that. He says, you try offering that as a present to your governor and see what he would say. And you're bringing that before Almighty God? And you think about that principle in relation to our lives here in 2021. What, we, what do we bring to God? You know, it's the leftovers of our time. Is it the leftovers of our money? Is it the leftovers of our energy? That's what we offer to God. You see, when we understand the greatness of God and the greatness of his revelation to us, it should bring an appropriate response from us as we recognize that greatness. Cain's offering, another illustration, was rejected because his response to God was on his own terms. And obviously Cain understood that some way or another, that this is what would have been accepted. But his heart was not in it in the sense that he, he was, was on his own terms. God isn't going to accept us on our, on our terms. He's, we only are accepted by him on his terms. Because he is the great God of heaven. Many people want to serve God and worship him. But, the way, but it's the way they want. And think that God would like this. Again, our Sunday school lesson. Maybe a nice new cart would be better than an old used farm cart. You know, this is, God you know, surely would like a new cart. But God said, no, I, I never told you to carry the ark on a cart. 
You were, you were told to carry, the priests were to carry the ark with the staves in the ark on their shoulders. That's how they were to carry it. And so you see, but they're so common, so it's an issue that mankind wants to somehow appease God and serve God in their own terms. Now I'd like to look at some of the truths from this passage and then also look at the practical side of this. I'd like to think first of all here, of the personal emphasis that we notice in this passage. Verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thy God. It's personal. And you think about this in relation to that it is only through personal faith in Christ that God becomes that personal God to us. I love the scripture where Jesus said, you know, before I've called you servants, but now I'm going to call you friends. You know, that, that relationship. And we have, you know, Paul talking about that in Ephesians 1, you know, where God ordained that we would be allowed to be accepted into the beloved, into the family of God. And later he says, you know, that we can actually say, Abba, Father, because we're not a servant. You know, we, we have that son-daughter relationship with Almighty God that we can use the most endearing terms as our Father. And of course, you remember and think of that, the uh, prayer of Christ where he said, this is how you pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Recognizing that personal emphasis, that personal relationship it is then by this intimacy of, of our daily faith in life, as we go through life as a Christian, this daily faith and walk with Christ, he becomes not merely known to us as a friend then, but personally embraced in intimate fellowship. You've heard me say this many times over this pulpit, but our prayer life ought to be an unending conversation with our God and with Christ. I know we pray to God through Christ, but Christ is also God. We also pray to Christ. We can pray to his Holy Spirit. It's God. And, and in that, there is that personal embrace of fellowship. And like I say, that unending conversation. Yes, we're busy with something, but you know, as our mind is freed up a little bit, you go back to that relationship with Christ. You go back to that pray, praying, and that unending fellowship with him. The nature also of love, we notice here, the, the, um, the word love in the Greek is the agapio love. This is the love of meaning, of purpose. It is the love of sacrifice and hard decisions. You contrast that to the Greek, also another Greek word that is used for love, the philio or philia, which is more of an emotional kind of love, more of a liking or an affection, a love uh, which can be nothing more than sentimental or um, you know, something that a feeling that is created by the right circumstances or environment. That is more the idea of the, of the filial love. But the word here is the agape love. It is, it is a choice. It is a kind of love that, that um, translates into hard decisions. It is the kind of love that took the martyrs to the stake. It is the kind of love that means that when we are tempted, like Brother Russell was talking about in our, in our devotional, you know, and we're tempted to say what is the point or to give up, it's that agape love that, that is solid. It's a choice that is made to love God above all else. Regardless of what that love for God will cost us and what it will mean to us and what sacrifice is, is, is involved. It is, it is also, I'd like to think of the... Um, 
Well, maybe I should say first, this type of agape love, you know, can't be worked up from or simply by emotional fervor. You know, as so many seek to do and think that that is their love for God. It's that emotion. We somehow bring God down to more and, and more like, like humanity, the, God, the great God of heaven, that you can somehow relate to him more on our level. Now, we know that Christ sent his son and Jesus came down to earth in human form. But to actually lower God to make him more understandable or more easy to relate to, I think is the wrong approach. Especially when you think about worship and you think about this loving God. Because do you really want to uh, serve a God that you fully understand? Can we really respect a God? Can we really understand a God that we can actually explain and understand? You see, there's the mystique of the, of the triune Godhead that is so far beyond us and so much greater than anything we can ever think or imagine. It's like when Paul said, unto him that can do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. Now, how much is that? Exceeding abundantly beyond anything that you could even ask or think. You see, God is transcendent. And, 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 and he wants to stay transcendent in our worship. And he wants us to love him in his transcendency. Because of that, of that greatness. And, and that is not simply merely born out of emotional fervor, as I said. To somehow drum up this cozy feeling that is on the filial level. But it's the agape love, it's a choice that we make. That we are going to commit our life to Jesus Christ, to God himself, until death and a baptismal vow. Because I made this choice. I know whom I have believed, as Paul said, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's the commitment of agape love. To a transcendent God that all eternity... If I can say this as a time ca um, captive, we'll spend probably all of eternity. You can't spend eternity, but you understand what I mean. Uh, seeing the greatness of God. And yet, some people think they can somehow bring him down, somehow make it more compatible to human reasoning and understanding. Let's not do that. What is the source of this love? It says here, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The source of love here says that it, we are to do it with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Notice the emphasis four times. With all. Now, in the original language, it has the idea of, in the, if uh, we do a literal translation, it would, be, it would be translated more from the idea of, from the source of love. So, it denotes origin. The point from which action or, or emotions proceed. In other words, love for God flows out of our inner life that is filled and controlled by a faith relationship with God, the knowledge of Christ, and of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, we'll probably come to it later, but I'm going to throw it in here now, in relation to the understanding of the source of life. In other words, we cannot do this without being partakers of the source of life. You can't just say, I'm going to love the Lord thy, my God. I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, strength, and mind. I'm going to do that. You can't do that. Because in the, in the connotation here is, it is we love in the sense of being tied to that source of love. To put it more simply, the scripture simply says, we love him. Because he first loved us. 
the implication of that truth is that we could not have that love for God before he loved us. So you see, in the context of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the fact that God is the source of that love and therefore enables us to experience it. I'd like to notice also the extent of this love. We talked about this with all your heart. It is not condensed as, you know, as uh, in the context here of heart, soul, mind, and strength, but with all. It's repeated four times here. And this whole idea of all in the Greek is the idea of, of holos. That's probably not pronounced right, but, but it's from the same Greek word that we get the word holistic. That's interesting. So he says this four times, with all, with all, with all, with all. And the idea is holistic in the sense that, that each one is related to the other. It's a package deal. We can't say, oh, I'm going to love God with my intellect. Or I'm just going to love God with my emotions. Or I'm just going to love God with my, um, my certain deeds I do. It's a package. It's all. It means whole, entire, complete. I think this strongly points to the fact that there can be no holding back or incompleteness in our devotion and commitment to God without serious repercussions in relation to that love that God wants us to have for Him. We can become lukewarm, we can become cold, we can become indifferent and not have that committed love to Him. In other words, we simply cannot divide our love, our affections, or our trust. But it, it, it's a package. I'm not sure if I can illustrate this properly. But you think about our, our lives as a whole. And uh, you think about your time, your energy, your finances, whatever it is. Your hobbies, your interests. So this is the sum total of our lives. And we can just do a little like a pie graph, you know what I mean? And, and this is so common of, of uh, Christian experience for our shallow Christianity, where this is a, a per person's life, a person's Christian life. And so here they have, um, say, your, um, uh, your work or, or business. You know, and, and depending on, you know, your interests and your pattern of life, you know, you know you, this is maybe your social time. And, and of course... Um, there's the entertainment, and um, there's, um, uh, well, you fill it in, whatever else makes up a person's interest in life, how you use your time and energy. And then the common thought is that as a Christian, well, you devote so much of this to worship, you know, and, and, you know, and serving God. You know, God takes up part of this because I'm a Christian, right? But there's something radically wrong with this. But that is how a lot of people view the Christian living. Yeah, that, that the serving Christ is somehow part of the package of my entire life. And that there, these are not necessarily all intertwined. When really, for a, a dedicated, I think a child of God, the way we understand the scriptures, and this scripture this morning, is that really, as a Christian... This is God. And everything I do is in the context of my love for God. I can't sell my business, my work, my social life, my entertainment, my whatever it is, recreation, reading, music. You go down the list. It all has to be in the context of my love for God. It's not just one part of my life. Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't just have God as a piece of your life. 
God is to be the focus of our life, and everything else is in the context of that love for him. Anything but a complete love for God that encompasses all of one's being and every area of one's life falls short of God's will and will end up meaning that we will not be what God created us to be. Otherwise, we will be self-indulgent rather than choosing for God and for others. Now, I'd like to look at the significance of each of these words that are used here, these four concepts or four ideas as it relates to us. First of all, you need to remember that there's that combined strength. I said about that holistic word, a combined strength, but there's also the individual emphasis. First of all, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. All thy heart. Heart has often in the scriptures has the connotation or the concept of the inner person, that which is the center of our life. It is it is where our affections are, our interest is. It's all it's really the sum total of uh, of us. Our relationship with God is central, of course, and paramount. And uh, God is as we tried to illustrate here. God is no side issue. You know, or God in our worship of God, our love for God is not just a once a week Sunday morning experience where we come together. This should only be the outworking of our worship and love for God that has been happening every other hour of the week or day of the week. And then we come together and there's that collective, you know, a focus on that. And that's what keeps this worship in this occasion, in our, in our collective worship, uh, full of life and full of strength. And full of meaning. When it is part, just a part, or the outflowing of the worship and love for God that we've had every day of the week. If we're kind of dried up during the week, we come together Sunday morning. Yes, sometimes God blesses us in spite of that. But but really, we're not setting ourselves up for spiritual success. This should be, how do you say it? cream on the peaches or you know it, it, it should be the topping it should be the the garnish it should be the you know that which is the ultimate because it just tops up everything that we've been thinking and praying about and loving God for this week you understand what I'm saying how do you find it in your life I know when I get dried up Spiritually, and it happens sometimes. Worship services don't mean as much either. You know, you can come to prayer meeting and come, you know, it's just you feel pretty dried up. We can just somehow rely on a really good service Sunday morning to somehow give us that push again. Is that just emotions? Hope not. But you see, you see what can happen if we're not careful. We kind of rely on this when actually we should be relying on our love for God every hour of the week. And then this is just a, a vibrant expression of that. A comment was made in the adult class about maybe us being a little stoic. And I, I'm not. I want any expression. I believe any expression in a worship service of joy and happiness and praise, which I think we could be a little more spontaneous. I agree with that. But I want it to be genuine. Let's make sure it's genuine. There's something about that, the, the false, hypocritical of that that is just grates on my nerves because you just feel that it's not for real. But when it is for real, it's powerful. Amen, brothers? Good. So it's the heart, the idea of our affections, which ultimately then determine our actions and our pursuits, the, the decisions we make. We're going to make decisions based on our affections, right? And God says, you love me first. You give me all your love, and then everything else is going to fall into place, right? Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, 
There he said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What we treasure, we love. We give time to. Yes, there's other things of life that we need to do. But all of that should be in, in the sum total of our, of our worship and love for Christ. In fact, the scripture makes it clear that we are to serve our masters or employers the way we serve Christ. You ever think about that? We have that responsibility. As to the Lord, not to men. The Bible says that. If Christ was my boss on the job, how would I act and react? As we serve Christ, we're to labor. We're to work, to be able to give, supply the needs of our families, those around us. It's all, it's a, that's an act of worship. You young brother in the poor concrete or you're in the logging, you don't often think of that maybe, but it's part of your service to Christ. I'm doing this. Whatever, whatever, whatever our work, whatever our occupation. All right, soul. All thy soul. It's often used to refer to the physical life and the, and the self-concept, we could say. To love God with all our soul or life means to be willing to give one's life to God and to devote all to him. Now, if we would break apart, you know, the threefold being a man, we could say the soul is, you know, the emotions, the intellect, and the will, possibly. Different ways to look at that. But that is to be devoted to, to God with all of thy soul. It means a total commitment. In the word soul, we see that the will is there choosing God to devote all to him. We face many decisions in life. We face many decisions in the hour of temptation. Where is our love for God? If our love for God is strong and committed the way God wants it to be from us in our soul, then our wills are going to come into, into, into place there. When we weaken ourselves in, in failing in our, in our that commitment of love for God, then we're going to fall in the time of temptation often because we don't have that total commitment that God is asking for. Well, here's the mind. Third one. With all thy mind refers to our ideas our viewpoints, our perspective of life, our thinking. Is our thinking governed by that whole parameter of love for God? Or have I relegated God to a certain box in my life and the rest of my life is mine? So we do certain things because we know it's expected and it's what a Christian maybe should do. We should, you know, come to church Sunday morning and we could, you know, prayer and meeting is, is kind of important. But then the rest of the time is mine. You see, that's, that's wrong thinking. And so it refers also not only to that aspect of, of activity, but then ideas and viewpoint. Am I willing to submit my ideas in my love for God to my brethren. You see, to love God with all our mind means to submit our minds, our thoughts, our thought patterns, opinions, and decisions to God's word. That when I go to the scriptures, I am totally ready to change my opinion. I'm not going here to prove myself right and my ideas right. I'm going here to find out what God says to me. And I'm willing to change. If he shows me there's something different than what I thought. It means that we lean not on our own understanding, but bring every thought into obedience and captivity to Christ. And this means that we act then not on what we think or how we feel, but in accord to the facts of the Word of God. The last one is strength. It refers to all our abilities, talents, gifts, and physical powers. All of these are to be surrendered and devoted to Him for His glory. Every energy of our being, every aspect of our lives is to be focused on the majesty and the essence of our great God. He is to be the reason, the foundation for all our actions and choices in life. Like you say, well, this sounds idealistic. 
Now we're talking about a mindset. We're talking about a mind frame, the way we think in relation to life. If I go to make a decision, you know, whether big or small in my life, am I in tune in my heart with the heart of God? And do I think about how this will affect God in, his, in my worship of him, my love for him? What would God want me to do? And, and, not, and keep that personal bias out of it. Someone has said that in relation to uh, how we recognize God in all of this in our lives, it is he should be our source. In other words, the reason for our being. He is our force, our dynamic for life and means for living. And he is our course. So source, force, and course our direction and destination for where we ought to be going in relation to our decisions, our thoughts, our worship, our attention. So where we go, what we wear, how we talk, who our friends are, all those things are simply outflowing or illustrations of where our heart is and whether our love for God is the way it ought to be. The chief end of man Another quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, the world promises all kinds of, of happiness, supposed happiness, pleasure, sensations, fulfillment, joy, all those things, fun. The world offers all of that, but it is empty and it is meaningless. And it will never satisfy because we were created in the image of God himself. And we will never find fulfillment. We will never find happiness. We will never find what, what we're looking for in that deep void that is within us that causes us to keep searching this and trying this and finding this. We will never find that until we find God. We were created in his image. We were created to serve him. We were created to love him. And the only way that we find, realize all those things, all those blessings, is finding God. We cannot live a normal life without God. I'm not saying that people of the world do their thing and all of that and have a, a sense of fulfill, a certain sense of fulfillment, maybe, and happiness in what they do. But ultimately, ultimately. There's emptiness. At the end of life, what is it? You know, the world seeks to satisfy itself on the sensational entertainments of this world. People seek happiness in exotic, you know, the next exotic vacation, you know, in self-pleasure and in accomplishments or in sports or human exploits of one sort or another. But that longing and the need that only God can fill, still remains there. It still remains there. We cannot shake that. We cannot leave that um, and turn away from it. It will always be there. The human life was created for God, and our hearts will remain restless and frantically searching for happiness, meaning, and purpose until we find our rest and our peace and joy in God. We love God because of his exclusivity. In other words, he is the only God. The Lord thy God is one Lord. There's one God. And we love him for that. We love him because of who he is. Think of Exodus 34, 6 there. The Lord passed before him. That was Moses there. And proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in, in love and faithfulness. You know, he made himself pass before there. And, and you think about the greatness of God in that. We love him for who he is to us. We love him because of who we are. When you think about our undoneness, you think about the lack of, of um, response to God from our hearts and how we have failed him. And he, he loves us and gives us opportunities. 
Yes, like last Sunday we talked about the fact that there will be the, a day when that mercy is over. But t- today we have that opportunity. You know, you know what is, uh, what is called for is you know, a total response of, of love and devotion to our great God. You think about who we are in comparison to God, that God would think about us, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God, the call is to love God wholly and completely. One writer said this, it does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. He wants, God wants everything. So a few questions in closing now. Is the Lord the all-consuming passion of my life? When, in our quiet moments, in our meditation of heart, where does your thoughts go? Where does my thoughts go? You know, when our minds are not preoccupied with a lot of the tasks and duties of life, you're just relaxing. Where does your thoughts go? Where do my thoughts go? Jesus said, where the carcass is, thither where the eagles be gathered together. They are attracted to the carcass because they enjoy the carcass. Where, what, is our, what is our joy? What is our pursuit? What is our, that's where our thoughts will go. They will feed on that. Do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for my Lord? And how would that show in my life? And my desire to serve God and, and in faithfulness, communicate with Him in, in prayer life and in, and in studying the Scriptures and in evangelism, and all those things are wrapped up in the outflowing of our love for God. Am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? Do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? Do I do things that please my Lord and increase his joy? Do I tell my Lord that I love him? This kind of struck me. When is the last time I told the Lord that I love him? Now we sing songs and all songs. But did, did you ever just, you know, you know, tell the Lord you just you love him? Do I do things that please my Lord and increase his joy? I guess I talked about that one. Do I talk with my Lord as much as I can? Remember, these are not things that we do to get God to love us. These are things we do because we love him. We are loved by him and we love him for what he has done for us. I believe one of the greatest marvels of eternity for the children of God will be in seeing the holiness and the greatness of God will be the marvel that he saved us and spent any time and energy to redeem us. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, And can it be that I should gain? It goes like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? God died for me. Think about that. Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. In other words, understand the depths, how deep that love is, love divine. Tis mercy all. Let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, O oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is, is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You think about the cost of our salvation, what it means for us to be saved. That will be, I'm sure, one of the great praises of eternity. I'd like to close now with an analogy, a few thoughts in relation to love of Christ. The scripture uses the analogy of a bridegroom and a bride. Revelation 19.7, there it says, talks about the end of time in relation to the saints of God. And it says, for the marriage of the marriage supper of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. You think about our lives today as a Christian in this total, all-consuming love for God, for Christ. We are now, as it were, in the betrothal stage. We are like those ten virgins waiting with our lamps, and hopefully oil in our lamps, that we will not be found wanting when the sound of the bridegroom is coming. But that is the stage we're in. We're waiting for our bridegroom from heaven. We're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all that that will portend for his people to all be together from all ages, the saints of God, the family of God, together for that event. Thinking of that relationship and the fact that we're waiting for our bridegroom, how should we live? And you think about waiting for the bridegroom. And Revelation says his wife hath made herself ready. There's a preparation that's going on. And that's where we're at right now in our lives as a Christian. We're in that preparation stage. Ephesians talks about that. You know, Christ washing and cleansing his bride. Get her ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thinking of that, a few questions we could think about. In the context of the bride and the bridegroom, what would you think of a bride that receives a letter of love and concern from her bridegroom, but in indifference, ignores it, doesn't open it, or seldom looks at it, and doesn't take it very serious? If you're one of the couples, I guess it doesn't happen much anymore, as much anymore with modern technology. If you're one of the couples here that enjoy getting a special letter in the mail or handed to you, you'll remember that heartbeat a little bit and the specialness of that. And you could just hardly wait to find a spot, a quiet spot, to open that and read those words. That's natural. That's the way it ought to be. That means there's a good relationship happening there. We are the bride. He has given us his love letter. He said, I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to meet you. You get, you get ready in the meantime. I'm going to help you get ready. What is our attitude toward the scriptures? How serious do we take them? How often do we read them? It's the words of our bridegroom to us. What would you think of a bride that knows her beloved is waiting at the door to speak to her? But she continues doing her busy little things and you know, and she just, you know, actually forgot he was standing there waiting. She's just preoccupied in her own, with her own things and doesn't even go answer the door. We would probably say she doesn't respect him very much, doesn't love him very much. That's not going to be a good marriage if that happens. How easy do we get busy with the things of time and sense and forget to pray? We forget to answer the door. Christ said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you just open the door, I'll come in. I'll sup with you and you with me. 
We're going to have fellowship together. That's the desire of Christ. What do you think of a bride that secretly likes the admiration of other fellows and flirts with their attention, with her clothing and actions, rather than keeping her focus only on her chosen one? What would you say about a bride like that? You'd say there's something really wrong. That's a marriage that's not going to work. She's not trustworthy. She has a double heart. How easily are we affected by what is in vogue or popular in the world around us? The call of the world, and we're tempted to look at other things, other ideas, take our eyes off our bridegroom. Do we love him with all our heart? Soul, mind, and strength. What would you think of a bride that acts sullen and stubborn toward the wishes of her bridegroom in preparation for marriage? Have a fight about the wedding and planning the wedding and don't get along and they can't resolve their differences. We'd say there's a problem. She's selfish and this marriage isn't going to work the way it should. The question to us is, in relation to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, how much do we drag our feet when we know what our bridegroom wants of us? When he says, you know, this is what, how I'd like you to do this. This is how I want you to be. Let's not be that kind of a bride. Last one, what would you think of a bride that is often in conflict with her brothers and sisters in the family? Bickering and holding grudges and bossing them around and trying to make them always do what she wants. We say sometimes that a young man ought to look at, if he's looking for a life companion, girlfriend, he ought to be looking at how she relates to her family. It's one indication of character. We understand that. But you think of this in relation to the bride of Christ and our preparation. Where is our love for God? Let's not act like bickering children. If we have that love for God, we're going to love God's family too. doesn't mean we don't need to address things sometimes. We don't need to help situations. But in a case like this, if a bride acted that way, we'd probably say, and maybe you, you know, would have said, well, she's just not ready for marriage yet. She needs to grow up first. Let's be sure God doesn't say that of us. We're in the preparation stage, that is true, but let's be doing all we can to prepare for that great day when we can be together. May we each concentrate on living out this first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, everything, and not hold anything back. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many illustrations. We thank you for the many lessons that we can learn. Thank you, Lord, that you understand our hearts. You understand our humanity. You understand the struggles that we battle with in life. But Lord, we also know that you understand the capacity that we have to love you as we turn our full attention to look into your face, to see thy greatness as it is. We can see it in creation. We can see it in the scriptures. We can see it in in prophecies, we can see it in, in the fulfillment of, of prayers and the way you answer, the way sometimes you choose to be silent and you make us wait for answers. All of those things, Father, are part of thy greatness and thy goodness to us. We realize this morning, Father, that we face a determined enemy that is out to destroy each of us, to cause us to lose our faith, to lose our way. We think this morning of those who have lost their way. Some are younger, some are middle-aged, and some are older, who have made shipwreck of their faith and allowed the devil to gain footholds and to destroy them. Father, we just plead for your strength and mercy 
for each of our lives. Help us to walk circumspectly, not taking our focus off of, of the world around us in the sense of knowing the dangers, but Father, help us to also know your angelic power and the armies of heaven that are there for your people to make a way for us. So we thank you for that. Bless each of us this morning that as we look inward and analyze our own hearts that we would understand our true condition and allow your Holy Spirit to work and move and that we would be what you want us to be. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.